The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. Kia ora and welcome to The Fold. My guest this week is Tony Bradbourne, who is the CEO and founder of Special Group. They are a creative agency born maybe a kilometre away from where I'm recording this right now. We're, we're in Morningside and they were birthed in, up the road in Kingsland. And yet as of right now, they are also a multinational with offices in, in Sydney, Melbourne and in the US. And... They have also expanded vertically to encompass media design um, and what they call PR, but but they actually mean something a lot broader than that. And we we get into that on this chat. And you know they're, they're an agency that has won some huge clients within New Zealand, um, most notably uh, Tourism New Zealand, uh, which is kind of in some ways one of the big figurehead. Um, everyone wants it accounts uh, within the New Zealand creative space and we talk about that extensively because there's so much of the evolving world and and of government that you can see through that client they've also won some some massive international clients uh, including Uber Eats which they which they initially won for Australia and now do for the US and Canada and, and other territories beside out of that came their first Super Bowl commercial which is a very much a super unlikely bucket list kind of a, a thing for any creative agency to, to ever create. And yet at the same time, Tony is not someone who, for whom there's a, a ton of media around. You know, if you, I, Alice Webler-Dahl, my producer, um, did some research on him and, and unearthed a grand total of two uh, stories that he'd been associated with in New Zealand. So there, there is a, to some extent a... Um, a sense that special group do their thing and don't necessarily participate in the same um, singing of their own sweetness uh, that the the kind of the the other big um, New Zealand agencies do, and and the difference between a locally born and still independent agency versus the multinationals that are. Um, here and and still dominate the um, the New Zealand marketplace is something that we talk about. One of the things that that special have always seemed to pride themselves on is how to, I guess, think about the whole of the campaign, not just the thirty or sixty second TVC that is a lovely piece of film, but and and will attract a big audience that you can blunt force trauma into by by spending money on on television, but also the long tail of of it splintering across 
all of the different social and other channels that you might um, find it in. And, you know, caring about that audience is, that's hard to reach and that requires a lot of different smaller pieces and, and more intricate plotting and thinking versus the one big thing that feels ultimately like the past, that's that's kind of what, you know, regular listeners to the, to the fold will know that's a real abiding obsession of mine is this kind of where where is the coming audience versus the going and and it's something that that Tony and his team think very deeply about as well. Now the fold is proudly supported by Vodafone uh, who bring you innovation made simple and world-class network technology which will help you maximize the potential of you and your business. Find out more at vodafone.co.nz. This is the fold with Tony Bradbourne, CEO and founder of Special Group. Kia Tony, and, and welcome to The Fault. Uh, great to be here, thank you. Um, I wonder if you could start by explaining to our listeners what, what Special Group is, because it is a bit <laughs> different from, from its sort of competitor set. Uh, we are a creative agency, a creative company, uh, and we generally play in the space of uh, advertising, design, um, and innovation in, in all the different parts we can play with to better help the brands we work with and what what was was that was it always the 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 intention you you know you're you're about what is it like 11 years or so probably about 13 years now it's ticking on a bit (laughs) yeah it seems to race by and in some ways it feels like we're only um we're only brand new but in other ways it feels like we're becoming more and more um yeah more and more broader in terms of our reach yeah do you do you feel like the industry well, it clearly has ex- suffered extraordinary, not suffered, <laughs> it's experienced extraordinary change over the part, over the, the time Special's been around. But what are the sort of, you know, to what extent has that, have you seen that change and how has it manifest? And do you think that the agency world has kept pace with, with the overall uh, change in, in society in that time? Yeah, I mean, on the whole, I think agencies have to adapt and constantly change, and there's big disruptions coming through. I mean, we were, we were, as I said, 13 years old. We're we're actually younger than Facebook, so we were born in the in the digital age. Um, and so the amount of different channels we can play in now, um, the amount of different tools we can play with, has is definitely broader than when I first got into this industry when it was really dominated by television and and press ads, which I used to love <laughs> yeah i mean that the thing that kind of as an outsider ob- observing the industry is that 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 era of of press ads and, and particularly big big tv commercials it was like simple i mean those were a cultural form unto mm. themselves it, it kind of made sense like everyone could could eat off of that from the, the media to the agencies and it worked for the there are brands and so on, and there's been this kind of huge, chaotic, convulsive disruption that's come mm. since. Mm. And it still feels to me like there are people, um, both on the media side, understandably, but also within kind of creative agencies, media agencies, um, within brands who, for whom the nostalgia for that era is so powerful that they struggle to understand how how much change has happened and, and how they might reimagine communication for this far more complex um, 
era. Is that fair? Yeah, th- that's, it's a really interesting. Um, it's a really interesting point. Like for a, a large number of our of our clients, and it all comes down to the target audience. Who are you trying to reach? Who are you trying to talk to? Who are you trying to emotionally engage with? And for for many of them, uh, television is still um, an incredible medium. It's one of the best mediums to to create emotion and connection and storytelling and repetitive storytelling. Um, and so that's a that that is still a, a fantastic fantastic medium. Um, but if you've got children, um, you will notice how little traditional television they watch. And so then if you look at that audience there, um, or a younger audience, or an under 30 audience, you will have to find different ways of reaching them and the channels that they, that, that is their world now, because it's not, it's not the world that um, I grew up in, which there was one, two, three different um, television channels. There was movie, there was out of home, there was magazine and newspaper. And now you would say that the majority of you know, under under thirty audience really have got a, such a, a wide variety of different channels. It's gone from a sort of tightly controlled um, mass audience market uh, of of the, you know the one that you described to, to to a whole bunch of kind of wildly differing offerings from the sort of wilds of YouTube where you have very little. You know, if you're trying to market within there, you've got very little kind of control of or real sense of what you are pre-rolling or mid-rolling mm. through and there can be some pretty gnarly stuff on there that you wouldn't you wouldn't naturally place your inventory with down to on the other side you know the the biggest and fastest growing uh new channels uh netflix and disney plus mm. both of which are completely ad-free environments mm. for now how do you sort of how do you kind of navigate that and and do, do you think that that the whole sort of industry in New Zealand has done a decent job of sort of forcing uh, its its clients to to reckon with that that new reality. It's uh, I think um, some do yes, some do some do badly. Of course, um, it's a constant state of having to learn and having to understand about these different channels and how you can play in there. The message lengths you get to play with um, become shorter. Or, um, or or different, um, and then the other thing about it is that it's also clients. Are, sorry, brands we work on is, is an interesting one. Is that educating them about what the shape of the campaigns are going to look like? Because they will probably come off a predetermined opinion that it is going to be those more traditional channels. You know, they grew up watching sixty second TVC, so they're expecting to see a sixty second TVC. So a lot of that comes a bit of about. Um, really understanding the audience and actually what are all the different touch points that the audience go through throughout a day, a week, etc. Um, and I think it's not just one channel, it's the, it's, the different, it's the different channels and how they all work together. And different channels can carry messages in different ways. You know, you've got outdoor, which is traditionally you have to try and get your point across in, in one, two, three seconds. Um, but then that is a companion medium with a piece of video you might see and where that video is on Instagram or whether it is on YouTube. Um, the other interesting thing about that, I should say, is some of the greatest ads in the world, um, they get played a lot on, or people seek them out on YouTube, or they um, or they get discovered on YouTube just because they're such amazing pieces of storytelling in a film. So even though you're not placing them in traditional mediums, you'll still see a 60-second or a, or a two-minute amazing piece of film um, come up on your YouTube feed anyway. Yeah, the, that level of sort of opt-in 
lean forward consumption, which never there was no way of disseminating it particularly historically, is is very different now. And you see the the really great campaigns, and you've had a few of them that somehow managed to capture and feel like the thing that the internet is is talking about or consuming, or one of the main ones of that day. And that's yeah, you know, and that's the, that really is the goal, I think, of any modern um, modern marketing campaign is that it needs to have um, a PR component at the heart of it. it has to be an idea or a concept that is that just gets spoken about and whether that's in traditional comms or whether it's amongst friend groups or whether it's the thing you talk about when you gather at the pub um so there is um so it, yeah the, the shape of the modern campaign is is a lot more is a lot more interesting in my mind because it has to involve all these different channels you can play with it has to be an idea that people love and and they'll see in in different ways shapes forms links I mean, when you use that phrase PR, because I was, you know, I've, I've always found that like the traditional view of PR is is a, um, you know, a representative yeah. of a, of a company or a government department who reaches out to a journalist to try and seed a, a story with them. You're using it much more in a kind of the almost like a, a, a the, the the social media response, the the kind of or the level of cultural cut through that it gets. That yeah. is, and that's effectively decided by the audience. Yeah, I mean, I guess PR is a is almost a bit of an outdated term, the same as advertising, I think, is a bit of an outdated term. When you think of advertising, you think of a 30-second um, a television ad that disrupts you and has got a retail message and a loud voiceover, et cetera. So I think that is, you know, about 20 years out of date uh, as well. So when I talk about PR, I guess I should talk about talkability, excitement around a campaign, um, a campaign that gets shared, that gets commented about, that gets picked up by traditional media, that gets spoken about in, in overseas news channels, which then New Zealand news channels pick up on the fact that a New Zealand campaign is getting spoken about overseas, et cetera. So it's kind of, it's to me, modern PR is really about all of those different aspects and it could involve activations, it could involve influences, um, all of those different bits. And so that makes it really, really exciting because you've got you've got all these different channels you can play in and they have to all play together to create a very, very you know effective and liked modern campaign that sits well in culture. So one critique I've heard of the agency world in New Zealand is that it is still very much focused on the big, grand, glossy 30 to 60 second TVC and doesn't think particularly hard about that sort of long tail of, of how you reach viewers or, or audiences that aren't committed to linear television and so inevitably you know you still want to be there this brand still wants to be there but that message gets picked up handed to you know the a sort of a junior copywriter at a radio station or the social media manager for a magazine and there's just not as much care and craft in that and it's further away from that big, beautiful, very well thought through and strategic piece itself. And you know, as a result, it just doesn't feel like that audience or those other audiences are as important to to the brand or the organization as as the you know, the big uh, loyal TV audience. Do you think that's a, a sort of a fair summation? Yeah, I guess everything at the heart of special, it comes back down to what's the strategy and, and what's what's the point and what are we trying to achieve um, on, on our brands that we work with behalf. So once you have got that very, very clear um, strategy, then then it's just about how do you apply it best to the different channels. So I, I think it has to have that consistency of of strategy and thought and reason for being. And that's how you can check whether 
and test to see how effective the campaign is and whether you iterate that campaign or whether you change different bits up or down, etc. But everything has to be linked into a consistent you know, brand strategy of what you're trying to do. So that's the, the, you know, the number one way of keeping a, um, a consistent campaign even though you're across multiple different channels. Is there an example that, that you've worked on recently where which you feel like kind of exemplifies that? And like how many different kind of pieces was, was mm. that composed okay, of, if, that, if that's an answerable question? There, here's, here's a really good one. It's a campaign that hasn't really run in New Zealand. It was for, um, it was for um, tourism in New Zealand, but um, for the international audience. And so, you know, there's between 12 and 8 key markets for, um, for tourism in New Zealand. Um, globally, we need to play in. But we, are, we only have about 0.3% of the total global tourism's um, budget and share of voice. So we need to be very clever about how we actually get our messages out there. Um, we have been move, and working with Tourism New Zealand to move the incredible, iconic, 100% pure New Zealand, which used to be about this amazing scenery and open space. And we've been moving it towards... 100% pure welcome, which is actually no, more talking about the experience that overseas um, visitors have when they, when they come here, this warm, welcoming nature of everyday Kiwis who will go out of their way to make sure you've had a, had a great time. And I think that's, that's in the heart of New Zealand culture is we want to do that. But without the budgets to be on TV internationally, we had to create a really quite different campaign. So we created a campaign called Good Morning World, which was actually um, not just one piece of work. It was 365 pieces of film, one for every single day. So on that, to better show our welcome to the world where they might not have ever come to New Zealand, how do we express that? We looked at some of the other interesting insights, which is, you know, New Zealand is one of the first countries in the world to see the light every single day. So we're up a couple of hours before everyone else. That predominantly played in digital channels, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, etc. Um, but it was really interesting because it was the way to better show a broader view of New Zealand than ever before, more than you could ever just show on a 90-second TVC. Um, but it created viewing habits and it created you know, a huge amount of engagement with overseas potential tourists. You know, we had about 12 million likes and comments. And um, and by the end of the campaign, we had hundreds of people, you know, begging for us to to um, to not stop it. And I think it's the first time I've ever done an advertising campaign where people have begged for it to continue. Tourism New Zealand is quite an interesting client in the sense that it wants to bring people here, which is a sort of, you mm. know, um, a good sort of balance of trade thing and, and obviously we have a whole um, sector associated with it but it's also a, a not uncomplicated industry you know it's we're a long way from anywhere so there are emails associated with it and part of what government has been talking about is and yep. successive governments have talked about is moving up the the value chain and trying to get a kind of let's just say it richer kind of um, and higher more higher spending mm. uh type of tourist here and you saw I thought some fairly impolitic uh, statements from Damien O'Connor recently about certain tourism businesses potentially needing to close kind of thing to, to what extent are you engaged with those conversations within the industry so that uh, within the sector and that that link between between government and industry and how you kind of without trading off an exclusivity can start to move from and and even down to like with 100% pure New Zealand there was for quite a while a sense that we were trading on something that wasn't 
as true as it once w- w- would have been, and, and to what extent did that drive the um, the the desire to reorientate around um, a different element of of what people get when they get here? Well, I think going back to the start of that of that, you know. Um, Excellent um, question and, and multi-pronged question really is that I don't think that we've ever gone out to try and or Tourism New Zealand has ever gone out to attract low value customers because as you very as you point out, it takes a long time to get to New Zealand. It's expensive to get to New Zealand. And so when they come here, they generally want to have a longer experience. And so therefore, uh, by default, they're going to be more high-value um, tourists. It, it's interesting. It's, it's not like in Europe where you can get a 40-quid a flight and you can get like 40-quid hotel rooms for a night. You, you can't do that um, in New Zealand. It takes effort and planning to get here. So I don't think Tourism New Zealand has ever consciously gone out to get to get low value customers, you know, um, because I think it's all New Zealand is self selecting. People want to come here for I think it's that almost that once in a lifetime experience, and and our and our job really is to get that is to change it from I want to go to New Zealand one day to I want to go to New Zealand today, and and I think that's the real hope of what we will be doing coming out of lockdown whenever whenever that happens in terms of actually fully opening up our borders. Even though our borders were closed mm. and it was was literally impossible to get anyone here who wasn't wearing, you know, a bright turtleneck into the country <laughs> as a tourist, um, we never stopped advertising uh, over, overseas. And you can sort of see why everyone involved in the chain would want to continue doing that, even though you know, for a long periods of last year there, was n- you know, there were no vaccines and there was no sense of when that, that reopening might come. How do you sort of, you know, how mm. do you and Tourism New Zealand, sorry to, to, to harp on this, I just think they're a really interesting mm. client because of, uh, of how big the industry they serve is. How do you sort of justify that continued spend in the absence of any ability to do something with that? Well, I guess there's a couple of key points here. Is, is, is the spend and the way that spend was um, apportioned, et cetera, did, did change, does change. The, the second thing and the broader thing you're pointing at, which is why continue to be a brand in the hearts and minds of potential overseas tourists uh, when they can't come here. And because um, at one sense it's uh, it's illogical, but then the other sense it's very logical. If you look at all of the marketing um, best practice that is that is you know globally available, etc., is that the idea of going dark, which is what they call it, just just turning off everything, um, does have massive um, knock-on effects in terms of how much you need to spend to then to then turn on the light again. The other thing to consider is that a trip to New Zealand is often, you know, 12, 24, even longer months in the planning. So so by us staying alive in the hearts of minds um, in multiple different ways um, to overseas tourists is very, very important because, we're yes, they can't come here now, but we want them to come here in a year and in two years and in three years. So it's taking a much more longer-term view of that. So speaking of... Uh the the way that special has has grown um, <laughs> steadily, deliberately, uh, to the point where you know you you know a lot of the agencies here, which we think of just because they've been around mm. so long as being kind of New Zealand agencies on one level they are, but they're almost all uh, owned by multinational groups, the the Saatchis, the uh, DDBs, the, the Colenzos, and so on. Um, and you're actually sort of reversing that process. You now have offices in, in multiple overseas countries. 
what 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 gave you the audacity? Because th- those are big, really well capitalized, very valuable listed <laughs> entities, and you're sort of going and camping on their lawn. Yeah, it's an interesting one. You know, we started 13 years ago uh, now, and just up the road in Kingsland, in an old what used to be an ex movie theater, and we had, you know, as we say, the, you know, we had one desk and three chairs and and, and no clients. And I guess that's the start of it. Is you got to start with ambition. You got to start to believe that we could do things a better way, that we could do work and ideas that we wouldn't traditionally be able to get through the the companies that were working in before. And you know, it's, it's the usual startup story. As you, as you want to, you want to be able to show the world. So. Um, you know, 13 years later, we're, we're the New Zealand Agency of the Year. Um, uh, we've won all of the all of the titles available to us now, and, and we are really the leading creative force in in the country. But it's kind of you, you kind of think, is that it? Or there's always more. There's always a broader and and broader um, horizon line. So seven years ago, we took the unusual move of of trying to open an office in in Australia. Um, seven years later, you know, special in in Sydney is now is now the, the Agency of the Year in Australia. And along the way, um, we've opened another office. We opened Melbourne, must have been about uh, nine months ago in the middle of lockdown, and then seven months ago we opened in Los Angeles. And I guess this is all just a part of this want to take what I believe is really unique about New Zealand creativity and innovation and um, and strategic and design thinking to the world. And as you spoke on there, most of the world of advertising is owned by holding companies that live in you know, New York, Paris, and London, and that's where they extract their their funds to, and that's where they go to. And um, usually, they the last office they open up in the world is is as far away from those holding companies as, as the chain goes, and that's generally this country called New Zealand. And so we've always loved the audacity of of can't we start something uh, that is the best of New Zealand creativity and then export it to the world? So almost turn the entire marketing world upside down and for us to swim the other way. And um, we're a couple of stops away from that um, as soon as we get an office in in, in France, Japan and um, and Europe. We would, have, we would have probably done that. But that is the ambition, create the world's best independent creative company for the world's most ambitious clients. Seems chill. Um, to what extent is you is the fact of your being independent um, has has that allowed you have you have you made the fact that you are probably by mm. comparison to them undercapitalized, but you mm. have other things that independence grants you. To what extent has that been a driver of your ability to kind of leap out? Um, we. As I said, I've been doing it for a long time, so I don't really remember what the world of multinationals was like. But speaking of special, independence gives us the ability to better make our own decisions um, at the flick of a switch. So if we lose um, a client, lose revenue, we do not immediately have to let go of staff. We can say, we've got our team, we believe in our people, we will um, we will just take a financial hit, we'll hold on to our team. And that's not what multinationals do. We can invest in other things. So last year we um, we partnered with um, Semi-Permanent and ATED and um, Department of, of Culture and to actually bring, to become a major sponsor of, of Semi-Permanent because we thought it was really important to try and create a, a cultural um, highlight an otherwise very dark year, and then to better work with uh, semi permanent to make sure that um, that tickets got given to about twenty two different schools around around um, the country where they wouldn't have usually been able to afford a three or four hundred dollar ticket. So we can invest in things like that. At semi permanent, we also launched an initiative uh, calling for um, New Zealand startups. So we put a full page press out, out there and did some digital work um, asking for 
um, startups who may well have been a little bit dissuaded by the by you know the choppy waters of of lockdown and COVID that they might have put their plans on hold. It's our belief that New Zealand needs more creative based entrepreneurial companies. This is what's going to drive the entire New Zealand economy going going forward, and we have to diversify away from our traditional heartland of of industry, etc. So we reached out, and we and the idea is that we just we take we pick three and we fund them as much as we can in terms of all of our strategic time design time, digital time, creative strategy, etc. We had over over 100 come forward, um, just some incredible, incredible companies, uh, incredible individuals, and we've chosen three and are now working with them. So being independent allows you to do, to do things like that. Also, being independent allows us to make decisions like paying back the wage subsidy. Um, we took the wage subsidy initially when, when revenue uh, took a big hit at special, um, but we were lucky to be able to rebound very quickly, and so we immediately made that decision to pay back the subsidies. Um, Did the exact same thing. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I think it's really important. Look, it's a. I know the multinationals. I know that many people that are running the multinational agencies in New Zealand may well have personally wanted to pay that back. But if you look at it, the cold hard truth is that there's big companies out there who took over a million dollars from the New Zealand taxpayer, asked their staff to take. Um, wage cuts as well and then instead of paying that any of that back they took that money and they gave it to those holding companies overseas now that's their personal choice but that's not specials choice and that's what independence gives you and i think doing the right thing in the country that you live in that has supported you and where your staff and the majority of your brands you work on um live in i think it's really important to do the right thing so uh, and there's there's sort of two two things that naturally spring out of that to me one is like because, because I agree, I, I find that the you know the kind of p- private equity firms and the um, you know the it's it's telling to me that that the, the the majority of the firms that have the big firms that have returned the wage subsidy have been New Zealand owned and operated, um, and the big ones that have kept it have have had remote ownership. And I do think there should be a cost to that because that is a burden they're placing on future generations of New Zealanders. When you are going to like. Does that factor into when you're making decisions about clients you would approach and, and work with? And like that, I guess that's the sort of, you know, the, the kind of value, you know, and, and the sort of values and stakeholder capitalism and so on. These are rising tides at the moment. So what, where does that line sit for, for you personally? Yeah, there's, there's industries that we don't go near, but they're the fairly obvious ones. Um, there is, um, you know, we've always had a bit of a, um, you know, one of the very first campaigns we did was was the Green Party election campaign in 2008. And um, um, a recent campaign we've just done um, at the end of last year for the election was uh, was for an organisation called Every Kiwi Vote Counts. And this was trying to get, you know, that million New Zealanders who are overseas and the ones who are eligible to vote to vote because we think that, the New Zealand that democracy is really important. We think it's it's very important to make it easier and to encourage every New Zealander who can vote to vote because we think that's a healthy and stronger democracy. So, um, so we'll we'll put our efforts and our time and our resources into those things that we that we really believe in to make to make the world a better place. How does that square with Uber Eats as a client? Just knowing what both the sort of personal kind mm. of chaos that came with uh, Travis Kalanick and also the immense complexity of what Uber does to the world from clogging up cities to, you know, the like the, the treatment of its its drivers as contractors and so on. Like, do you, 
and and to the way that it has kind of hollowed out uh, the hospitality um, industry in so many places and, and been blamed for that. Whether you know you can argue about whether that's right or wrong. How, how do you sort of did, did that was that something that was part of the sort of decision making process or was it just like holy shit that's an enormous global client with instant name recognition mm. around the world and the work we could do would be transformative. When we first started working with Uber Eats in Australia, which must have been about five years ago, they were number three in, the, in that market. It's Uber Eats, not, not Uber Rider. Mm. Um, I guess if you look at it from one point of view, is it makes the world a better place for so many people. You have, it used to be that you had a on your fridge you had a um, pizza, curry, or a Thai restaurant, but this now gives you choice of which amazing things come from it. And so this also allows multiple um, restaurants to thrive and to spring up in, in different ways. And you can see during lockdown just the actual beneficial effect of having Uber Eats being able to keep these uh, restaurants going. Um, we now do Uber Eats uh, for North America and Canada and about about six other territories around the world and we just did our first Super Bowl um, commercial but that's linked with them also giving I think 20 million in support to to local um, to local restaurants over there so you can either say I don't like the PR I read about the company now or you can work with them saying this is an amazing company and they and they're doing everything they can to do to do um, to do better um, Recently in in America, they've started. Um, you know, th- th- it's an incredible company because they are forever moving, forever progressing, forever changing, forever trying to get better. So now in America, you can choose um, if you want um, if you, to get picked up by a female um, uh, driver, for example, and that is really important. You know, I've, I've got a daughter, and so I know that if she comes out of um, at a bar or a nightclub, for her to have the ability to be able to have a female driver is a very progressive and interesting thing. Furthermore, the female drivers can select to only pick up female passengers. And so this is actually changing the world in, in, in many, many ways. Um, and look, that they will be the first to admit that, they, that they're forever trying to change. The CEO's um, a fairly inspirational um, new CEO. And so I think that's a company that is committed to being committed to being better, but also committed to making the world a better place. Does that sort of, because I mean, the, the advertising industry doesn't have a great reputation across, yeah. as, as a place to work across multiple ways, but special does, um, by my understanding. What, how do you, and, and you know, you sum up that you nodded out with the, um, you know, with not making people redundant, with not forcing people to take pay cuts during lockdown. You know, what, do you know, to, to describe the, you know the importance of people and and what what value beyond just being a decent um, you know corporate citizen that that provides. Yeah, look, you know, um, it's it's about culture. Culture. If there could be a different word to describe culture in advertising and design companies, I'd love to love to hear it. Um, it's a it's a people business. So. It's about attracting the best talent and then allowing um, the best workplace for that talent to do their best work. So it's in your absolute best interest to make it uh, the best possible workplace you can you, you can work in. Like we do so many things. Um, like we um, every Friday we put on lunch for the entire agency because it's time for us to down tools and and share a bite to eat and actually have a chat to people where you might be too busy to otherwise. Uh, we do all sorts of things like if you if you um, make it through ten years, it's special. We give you you know ten weeks ten weeks off. Uh, we do all sorts of things like um, like you know the exchange programs where we will you know um, periodically every it was supposed to be every every six months, but uh, lockdown sort of scuppered that. But we'll we'll fly. Um, 
a really well performing or or loved or liked staff member and their family or their partner to go across to Sydney to check out the office over there and then spend the weekend there. So we're constantly trying to do everything we can to make it the best place to work in New Zealand because we want the best talent in New Zealand. One thing which uh, a friend of mine who who uh, works in the agency world you know has has developed a thesis on is the extent to which awards have come to unnaturally mm. dominate um, the sort of mind share of creators. This is a good one. This is a good question. Keep going. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, her, her thesis on it is actually Lee Lowndes, who runs our creative studio, Daylight, um, so I should give her credit for it. Um, she's basically of the opinion that the award almost becomes the client and that the client's needs uh, get sort of subsumed to the need of the individual creative to be seen to collect awards, which will then further their career. And there's almost like at times she would characterize it as like a, an irritation that the client might have a view mm. on, on some of that kind of thing. Do you think that's a, a fair diagnosis? And how do you kind of, in an industry where awards are a kind of currency, maintain the correct balance of that tension? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. Awards, um, pretty shiny things, but also very dangerous things, you know. You want to um, obviously um, have your work um, applauded by your peers to be able to be held up as extremely effective pieces of work. They are in some ways the best way to market your agency to future brands, etc. You can say, we've done this work, it's achieved these results. Um, and that's a combination of choosing the right awards to, to enter. I should say also that awards are extremely expensive and um, and they're time-consuming and they are distracting. So we will never do a piece of work with the express um, desire or, or to, to actually win a piece of work. We always do work that we believe will, will you know, hopefully radically transform a client's business for the better and we use creativity to do that. Then, of course, we will, we will enter awards if we think that that work has got a chance of, of winning. But up against the other multi, multinationals, we will always spend a fraction of what they will spend. So, look, it's a it's a thing that's actually really close to my heart because it's, it's a how do you actually, which awards are valid um, because there's too many of them out there. And it also comes down to, um, to <laughs> yeah, it comes down to interesting things such as our agency of the year awards are they based on how good the work is or how much average work you've entered therefore to get enough points to win the agency of the year so that's a personal little thing for me that we should probably skip past otherwise i'll start ranting that's right i've got plenty of those as well um we're sort of coming towards the end of the of our time but I, and this is a, to a certain extent circling back to the start but i i and, and this is honestly probably one of my personal bugbears but uh i I have a this this sort of feeling based on you know all of the kind of endless data that you consume that um, the the complexities of engaging with just how hard it is to reach, particularly the sort of the audiences that aren't mm. there for your for linear television, is not something that um, big. Media agencies, in particular, if I'm honest, have have meaningfully engaged with to the extent that they could, and certainly that the given the quantum of audiences that's there, that the effort, the spend, the um, creativity in terms of what you put in front of them, 
versus the the big TV audience. That yeah, they just it just feels like there is still some level of oh, that's a thing we'll figure out at the end, rather than that. Yep. That's a thing that we should think about from yep. the very start. And further, there's just a huge opportunity if you're one of the brands that doesn't do that with a sort yep. of um, in a, with a cynical lens to go. Well, let's think about those people first because almost like the TVC is the relatively easy audience mm. to find. Let's start with the hard part. Do, do you do you see that there is enough done on that media agency side and and that brands are really truly engaging with? It? I mean, it's twenty twenty one. Yeah, You're right. We're yeah. fifteen plus years into the social web, and still it feels like a grind at times. Yeah. So um, we've just um, recently extended our capabilities to be you know PR and to be media because we believe that creativity um, plays a really important role in in, in those disciplines as well. Um, here's a really good example for uh, that we did for Smirnoff. Uh, must have been about five years ago, where you know Smirnoff we've got a we've got a brand platform of pure potential. Obviously, Smirnoff's triple distilled. Um, but it's also got great potential as 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 an alcohol to mix with anything, whether it's grapefruit juice, orange juice, etc. So it's one of the most flexible drinks. So that's all cool. But then when how do you um, when you're trying to target an, an interesting audience? We chose Instagram, and this is one of the uh, sorry uh, Facebook. Sorry, yeah, Instagram was one of the first times when film was actually used uh, was you know being used on Instagram. Before that, it used to just be stills. Now it's all completely video. Mm. Um, so we created a campaign called Instagram Your Fridge, where we we asked people to take a photograph of their fridge and just and just gram us, and then we had mixologists that would recognise what's in their fridge, whether it was milk uh, or, or orange juice, or whatever, and we would concoct a a, um, a cocktail uh, for them and then send back that film, and it got you know shared and viewed, and liked over over a million times. But here is a really interesting example of using creativity and a channel, Instagram, uniquely to better really target their audience with what they want, as opposed to just saying, here's a, here's a you know, buy this product type thing. So I think the more creativity you can use, the more you can understand your audience, the more you can do some really interesting things that, um, that make the channels hopefully a better place to be in, as opposed to just being spammed with advertising. All right, Tony. Thank you so much. It's it's, it's so fascinating to me the the kind of the complexities of these issues in this era. And uh, I feel like if more people would sort of be excited by that rather than frightened by it, then we'll, mm. then we'd be in a better place. But yeah, thank you so much. Hey, for thank you. It's been um, it's been great chatting. Cheers. Kia ora e te iwi. Te Butler here, podcast manager at the Spinoff. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a spin-off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spinoff Podcast Network.